Proverbs chapter 4, um, these scriptures, beginning in verse 20, are some of my favorite scriptures because they're some of the first things that I heard from Brother Hagin that, um, that set me on the, the course, not just to alter my life from where it was going before, but to get me on track with what the will of God was for me and for my life. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20, <clears throat> my son, attend to my words. Incline thine ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart. For they are life unto those that find them, and health to all their flesh. I'll add verse 23 too. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. The word issues there means force or power. I want you to notice in verse 22 it identifies the purpose for doing verses 20 and 21. It's telling us to put the word of God first place in our lives, the sacrifice that he made on the cross, and the fact that he was raised again on the third day. Well, you can't get into the family of God without believing and accepting that. But there's a lot of difference between just being saved, just being a Christian, and I really hate the way that I have to say that, just being a Christian. But there's a difference between being a believer, being a Christian, because you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, and living by the word. Notice in John chapter 8, Jesus talking about this very thing. Verse 31, it said, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. Now notice that phrase. It's going to identify who he's talking to. He's talking to believers. He's talking to people that accept that he's the Messiah. Now, you couldn't be saved at that point in time because Jesus had not yet been to the cross and paid the price that was necessary for the removal of sin or for our redemption. But notice that these are believers. These Jews that he's speaking to are believers. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now, folks, compare those two passages of Scripture, those two verses. My words are life unto those that find them in health to all my flesh. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. You shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. He's not talking about freedom for the believer. The freedom that a believer obtains is freedom from spiritual death. To come into the family of God. And again you do that by accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But he's talking about from the point that you become a believer. There's another place. That's called being his disciples. And it's dependent on the word. We've got a lot of believers. In the modern day church that are not disciples. We've got a lot of believers that have accepted the truth of the word of God concerning salvation. And again, that's the only way you can be a believer. It's the only way you can come into the family of God. But there's a lot of people that never continue on from there. But if you continue in my word, he said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Notice again, Jesus is talking about freedom on two different levels. You can be free from the bondage of sin. You can be free from spiritual death by becoming a Christian, by asking Jesus into your heart. But that, according to what Jesus is saying, doesn't make you a disciple. God wants us to live by his word. Isn't it something we have to talk ourselves into living by the word? Isn't it something that you have to preach to believers about the need to continue in the word. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. We want to see an example of this. It's going to tell us about Jesus before he enters into his earthly ministry. He's just been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And everybody that was there saw the Holy Ghost come upon him and remain and they've heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now we know that Jesus 
lived a perfect life. He lived a sinless life. And so we would have to understand and conclude that Jesus is living by the word under the old covenant. What I mean by that is verses like Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8 where God told Joshua, this book of the law, talking about the word of God, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do them. Mayest observe to do them. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. We have to conclude, we have to understand, that a part of being sinless, according to the law, is that he's acted on Joshua 1.8. This is the kind of guy he is. He's put the word on the inside of him. We have a little bit of information about Jesus growing up at the point that he was 12 years old. You remember the story that his family went to the temple for their yearly pilgrimage, as they did every year. And they assumed, Jesus' parents assumed that he was with the the company that left, but found out that he wasn't with them. So they turn around and go back and find Jesus sitting in the, the temple asking questions of the Pharisees, the high priests, and those that were in charge, asking them questions they couldn't answer, and answering their questions. And they're marveling at the wisdom and the understanding that this 12-year-old guy has. Well, that has to indicate to us then that he's put the word into his heart, that he's meditated in the word like Joshua 1.8 says. It has to indicate to us that he's found the word as Proverbs 4.22 says, it's life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. We have to conclude and understand that he's operating in that very position, right? So the time comes for Jesus to begin his earthly ministry. Verse 1, Matthew 4. Then was Jesus led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple. And said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus said unto them, It is written again, or is also written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil took him up into an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and said unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then said Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Now, folks, notice what's happening here in this situation. Jesus goes into the wilderness. Uh, I I really don't like the King James um, phraseology about that. Jesus did not go into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. That's not why he went there. He went there to separate himself to God. He went there to prepare himself for the three years of ministry that he knows that he's going to undertake that it's time now to undertake, that would end in his crucifixion and his resurrection. So when Jesus came to his low point, when he came to his weakest point after 40 days and being hungry, that's when the devil attacks. It's when he attacks. Jesus is the way he attacks us. It's just the way he works. So Jesus finds himself face-to-face with the devil, so to speak, and the devil's purpose is the same thing with Jesus as it is with us. He's trying to influence behavior. He's trying to influence Jesus' behavior. He's trying to dominate Jesus through the the things that he's trying to get him to do. Folks, I want you to understand, the devil doesn't have access to your spirit. He can't change who you are. But he wants to influence us through behavior, which is what he did with Adam and Eve. He influenced their behavior. He lied to them. He deceived Eve for the purpose of influencing their behavior. And it worked. But not with Jesus. 
Notice the difference what happened with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and what happened with Jesus. When the devil shows up and asks Eve about the forbidden fruit, she simply says, well, yeah, God said if we eat thereof, we'll die. The devil refuted that. He said, you won't die. God knows that you'll be like God's, and he's trying to keep that away from you. He doesn't want for you to have the most of anything that you could possibly have. That's the devil's reasoning. When he comes to Jesus, Jesus isn't talked out of the word that he knows. Eve knew the word. She knew what God had said, and that should have been enough to keep her from doing it. The Bible says that Adam lived 920 years after the fall. I'm sure every one of those 920 years, every day of those 920 years, Adam and Eve are wishing they hadn't done what they did. But notice the difference with Jesus. Here's what living by the word looks like. In each case, Jesus said, it is written. It is written. It is written. He even had to come to the place where he had to know, have an understanding of the Bible, know what God's word was, so that he could refute the devil saying it is written. And folks, we need to understand, everybody needs to understand, that the devil will use scripture to try to influence your behavior against the will of God. But Jesus had an answer for that too. He said it's also written. It's also written. Here's what life the life that is discovered through the acting of the word, this is what that looks like. Again, Proverbs 4.22, For they, my words, are life unto those that find them, and health to all their flesh. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 1. I want to start reading in verse 15. Here's a prayer that Paul prayed for the saints at Ephesus. And since God is no respecter of persons, we would have to also understand that it would be a prayer that would work for us too. And I believe that's the reason the Holy Ghost kept, helped us by keeping a record of it, providing a record or an account of it for us. Verse 15, Paul said, Wherefore I also... <coughs> After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding, that word understanding is the word spirit, the eyes of your spirit being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power? Let me read that verse again. Paul's praying that they would know three things, the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Thank God we have an inheritance. We're joint heirs with Christ. But verse 19, Paul's praying that the church, that you and I, would know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. Now, that's not power to become a Christian. That's not power to become a believer. That's power for the believer. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So he's talking about the power of the resurrection. That's the, the power he wants you to know that you have. The power of the resurrection. Now, folks, I would submit to you that God exercised more power to raise Jesus from spiritual death than any other thing that he ever did. I mean, we think of the, the story of the creation, the account of creation, and we think, wow, that God, look how powerful God is to do that stuff. But God, the Bible says God did things simply, easily, almost casually. 
There's a place in the Psalms where it says that God created the stars in the sky by flicking his fingers. Well, we wouldn't consider that to be a great display of power, would we? But all of the power of God was on display to raise Jesus from the dead. And that's the power that the Bible says you have. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above, say far above, far above above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come. That's a description of Satan's kingdom. And the power of the resurrection placed Jesus in a position far above anything the devil could ever think about doing. Far above. Not just above. Certainly not equal to. Far above. Verse 22, and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. That might be a little bit confusing in the sentence structure. But what it's simply saying is he put everything under your feet because you're in the body of Christ. You are the body of Christ, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Chapter 2, verse 1, I think this is one of the worst page breaks or chapter uh, designations that there is. Because he's just finished talking about how that he's praying by the Holy Ghost for us to understand and know certain things. Talking about wanting us desiring for us which if he's doing this by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost means this is what the Holy Ghost wants for us and that is to understand the power of the resurrection that belongs to us as believers when that power raised Jesus from the dead chapter 2 verse 1 and you hath he quickened in other words it's saying God raised Jesus from the dead with this mighty display of power and you too You are just as raised from the dead as Jesus is. You are just as much made spiritually alive through the new birth as Jesus is. The Bible says Jesus was the first begotten, the first born from the dead. Well, now that can't be physical death. He wasn't the first born from physical death. There are instances in the Old Testament where people were raised from the dead. In Jesus' ministry, there were several people that were raised from the dead. Lazarus and then the young boy that was Jesus raised him during the funeral procession. What does a funeral turn into when the guy gets raised from the dead? I mean, we're all here. We might as well hang out. So Jesus could not have been, certainly was not the first begotten or the firstborn from physical death. So what death is he talking about? has to be spiritual death. Which means if Jesus was the firstborn from spiritual death, he had to have died spiritually. And that's what happened on the cross. He was made to be sin. Made to be sin. The sin he's talking about is the sin that came about as a result of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. The spiritual death that began to rule and reign over over mankind. So Jesus had to die spiritually in order to be born again. And the Bible says at the same time, in the same manner, with the same power, with the same results, that Jesus was raised from the dead, so were you. And you. Hath he quickened, hath he made alive. And you were raised too. And you as a quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins. Now this is the letter to the Ephesians. Paul wrote this letter to them toward the end of his life. But turn with me to Acts chapter 19. Let's look at the first time that Paul really began to establish his work in Ephesus. The Ephesian church was the biggest church of the day. It was the mega church. The city of Ephesus was, um, is estimated to be about 500,000 people. And the Christian contingency 
or the Christian church in that city is estimated to be about 50,000, about 10% of the population. Acts chapter 19, it tells us how Paul found certain people that were interested in the things of God, and so he prayed for them. They got saved. They were filled with the Holy Ghost. And then Paul stays in the city for a period of time, verse 8, and he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. It's, uh, it's said that this school of Tyrannus was a, a healing center. It was a medical practice of some type. And the, uh, the archaeological finds there seem to support that. And so this continued by the space of two years. So he's three months in the synagogue, another two years in the school of Tyrannus, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, when it talks about all those that, that uh, were in Asia heard the word, it's talking about Ephesus being such a, a crossroads-type city. It became a mission center where people would come to Ephesus to do business, hear the preaching of Jesus, get saved, get filled with the Holy Ghost, and go back to where they came from. And the, the gospel naturally spread or spread in a natural way from people sharing their testimonies and their experiences. So Paul's here now for two years and about three months. Most Bible scholars agree that the timeline would have been he spent three to three and a half years total in the city. And if that's true, it's the longest, longest period of time of any place that Paul stayed. Because he's having ministry results that outstrip anything that he's ever experienced before. Verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 11. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Notice the power that's on display. It's not just through physical contact with Paul. It's not just through Paul laying his hands on people. But here we have the first recorded account of taking handkerchiefs. And it mentions the word aprons there. That apron is probably Paul's work clothes. Because he worked to support himself as a tent maker while he was there in, in that place. That's one of the reasons he had such close fellowship with Aquila and Priscilla. Who were also there in Ephesus when Paul when this period of time is speaking to. Because they were tent makers too. And so the, the clothes, the handkerchiefs, the aprons, we sanitize it nowadays and have people bring brand new stuff and we'll lay hands on it and send it back to them. And it works. Thank God it works. But for Paul, these are work clothes. This is where Paul's wiping the sweat off of his brow with the handkerchief. People are clamoring to get this stuff because it's got an issue, sweat, from Paul. And the people were so convinced by the miracles and the healings and the signs and wonders that were being done during the, these three years or so in Ephesus. They're so convinced that the power of God is on him, on Paul, that if they can just get something that's been in contact with him, they can get help from for their loved ones. And it worked. It worked. Now, notice something else that happens. As I said, this is the biggest ministry result, if we can call it a revival. It's the biggest ministry result that Paul had anywhere that he went. And remember, Paul is going to be run out of town not long after this period of time concludes. He's going to be run out of town because the people that are making the little idols for people to have in their homes or carry with them. Their business was being affected. There was so much a change in the lives of the people of the city 
that businesses were being affected. Paul mentions in his letters to Timothy that there were two people that withstood him more greatly than any others. Alexander the coppersmith and Hymenaeus. Hymenaeus is not, an English, uh, is not a Jewish word or name. So we would have to conclude that Hymenaeus is in the same position or the same category as Alexander. They were businessmen whose businesses were being affected by Christianity. They were businessmen whose businesses who were losing business because of people getting saved. Paul doesn't even mention the Jews. The Jews are trying to have him killed everywhere he goes, stirring up trouble against him on every hand. But Paul talks about the people that brought him the most harm were these businessmen. Because Christianity is changing people's lives, it's changing their worship, it's changing who they're worshiping, it's changing how they're worshiping. So again, verse 12, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits, the name of Jesus, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now, folks, this is the, we're going to read the story of the seven sons of the Jewish priest who do this and, and the results that come about as re, from what they did. But they're not the only ones that are doing this. There is such a knowledge of the condition of the city and the Christianity, the power of Christianity that's taking place that people that don't even know Jesus themselves are using the name of Jesus because that's what Paul did. Now, it doesn't tell us what kind of success they had, except for the seven sons of Siva. But when the Bible talks about the last days, one of the things that it says is that the whole earth shall be filled with the knowledge of his glory. Here's an example of a city that's filled with the knowledge of his glory. And everybody knows it's not just Paul. Everybody knows it's the name of Jesus. Now they're taking handkerchiefs and aprons, work clothes, rags, whatever they can get a hold of. This had any contact with Paul whatsoever to bring healing to people that can't get to Paul. But the whole city is filled with the knowledge of the truth of the power of God in the name of Jesus. If that's what one city looks like, what's the last days of the church going to look like? When it says the whole earth shall be filled with the knowledge of his glory, not just a city of a half a million people, the whole earth. The best days of the church are ahead of us. Okay, so certain of the vagabond Jews who were exorcists took upon them to call over them, which had evil spirits, the name of Jesus, saying, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of one Siva, a Jew and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Now, I'm just guessing this is not going the way they wanted it to. The evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, seven of them, and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and the Greeks dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Notice the understanding that the people of Ephesus had concerning the, the church, Jesus, and the power that's in his name. 
here in this greatest revival that Paul's ever experienced, greatest ministry results that we have record of. Notice what happens next. And many of them that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. The calculation on that in modern day values would be something like $10 million. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Now here's the question. Greatest revival that we have record of in Paul's day. Greatest results. The spread of the gospel. The influence of the gospel. The power of the name of Jesus and the knowledge that's in the knowledge of that power that's in the city, throughout the city. What are church people? What are Christians? What are believers still doing with all the other idol worship stuff? How is it they still have their books and their curious arts? Their trinkets, their idols, their tokens, whatever people use. Why do they still have it? Because for most people, or many people, the Bible says many, so I'll say many. For many people, Christianity, in the middle of this great revival, in the middle of this great display of the power of God for healing and deliverance, many people, or for many people, Christianity was just something they did. They just incorporated it into their life along with worshiping everybody else. And notice that it was only after they put the word first. It was only after they elevated the word of God in their own minds and in their own attitudes to get rid of everything else that the Bible says so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. That says to me that the prevailing word the mightily growing word and the results that come from it only really take place after you put God first. After you become a doer of the word. After you live by what the Bible says. After you operate like Jesus did and face every temptation or every situation with what the word says. And not before. I do a lot of reading after Smith Wilkersworth and uh, John G. Lake because they were men that were used of God in ministry in great power. Wilkersworth was all about faith. It's, um, it took me a long time to get into his head, if you know what I mean by that. I want to know the attitudes of these guys that, Paul, that God used in great power. I want to know what it was about them that qualified them for the places and the positions that God gave them. And Wigglesworth is a difficult read. He's a much tougher read than John G. Lake is. Because everything about Wigglesworth was faith. Wigglesworth didn't even come, uh, require in his ministry, he didn't even place a great emphasis on people believing he did most of the things that he did, healings and miracles. He raised 20-some-odd people from the dead during his ministry. And almost everything that he ever says is a matter of God honoring his word to him, Wigglesworth, not to the people. Wigglesworth said this at one point in his life. He said, real living begins when you get filled with the Holy Ghost and start praying for power. There were times when Wigglesworth would operate in unorthodox ways. There was uh, one ministry line that he was conducting, and two guys, two young guys, university age type guys, came to him, and Wigglesworth would always ask him, What's up? In other words, what's the problem? And this guy said that he had stomach ailments. Well, both of them, both of the two guys had stomach ailments, and that was the reason that they went to the meeting. 
The first guy, when Wigglesworth got to, and he said, I'm having trouble with my stomach. Wigglesworth reared back and hit him in the stomach as hard as he could with his fist. The guy went flying. Wigglesworth, great big guy. The guy went flying, slain in the spirit of God. Came to the other guy and said, what's up with you? He said, my eyes hurt. So there were some very unorthodox ways about Wigglesworth. One thing that was not uncommon happened, well, I won't say frequently, but several times through his ministry, is that if, we, if you got Wigglesworth to pray for you and then came back in the healing line the next night or the next two nights or whatever, he'd kick people in the seat of the pants off the platform. And he'd say something like, you don't have the good sense to know you were healed the other day. But it's not like he would teach on faith like we do. You can't find many sermons at all that Wigglesworth really talks about the mechanics of faith. Believing with the heart and confessing with the mouth and some of that stuff. But Wigglesworth talks about God elevating to higher levels. And he's always talking about his own faith. Now, he knew that his faith inspired other people to believe. He knew that the reputation he had gained and the way that God would use him, and it, um, and it, wasn't, it wasn't the way that he wanted God to use him in many cases. There was one story that um, uh, George Stormont told me about this one. He was the, the guy that we became acquainted with later in his life, and he was a young man, young minister, and, uh, and was kind of taken under his wing, under Wigglesworth's wing. Wigglesworth used to call him the Benjamin of his old age. He told me a, a situation about somebody that was um, bedfast, prominent family in the city, and, and uh, the woman was bedfast. I don't remember what the situation was. But she petitioned the pastors that when Wigglesworth came for his meeting in the city, she asked the pastor to, to have him come by her house. Well, she was a woman of great wealth and influence, and so the pastor certainly wanted to do whatever she asked him to do. So they went to the house. He took Wigglesworth over to the house. And Wigglesworth dealt with her real, real strong, real, real sharp, harshly. How that she had tried to influence the, the work of God with her money, and manipulate people for her own purposes and all that kind of stuff. Didn't pray for her, wouldn't pray for her. And when they left the house, Brother Sturman told me that by the time he got to the car, Wigglesworth, Wigglesworth was just weeping. And he was saying, oh God, why did you have me to deal with her like that? Why do you want me to deal with people harshly and roughly like that? So it wasn't something he wanted to do. It was something he really felt like God intended. Well, the end of the story is the woman called back for the pastor, asked her to bring Wigglesworth again, and they went that time, and her whole attitude was changed. She'd repented of everything, said, you're exactly right. I've done the wrong thing, been operating the wrong way for many years. Wigglesworth laid hands on her, and she was instantly healed. But Wigglesworth talks about being brought into higher levels of faith and power. And his meetings looked to me like they were challenges to his faith. The harder the situation, the greater challenge or the greater test. He'd always talk about testings. He considered the, the most difficult cases to be the greatest tests of whether or not he could believe that God would honor his word. And he always did. Lake is a different type of guy altogether. Lake understood faith. But his whole thing was about spiritual hunger and spiritual dominion. 
Lake talked about the greatest times in his ministry as being the result of a greater degree of hunger for himself. The hungrier he would get, the greater God would respond. And nobody teaches, before or since, nobody teaches on spiritual dominion like Lake. I don't think anybody had an, had an understanding of spiritual dominion like Lake does, did. Well, he's still alive, and I guess he still does. But Lake was a totally different person when it came to faith. Lake had financial troubles throughout the entirety of his ministry. He didn't understand that faith was the same for healing and for miracles as it is in every other area. He didn't get that. And so as great as his ministry was, and as great as the results that occurred were, his ministry was cut short by finances because he never could get to the place where he believed God for, to provide for him and his family like he had in other areas. So he talks about how that he would have a greater hunger. He'd, he'd write in his diary things like, I woke up this morning with a much greater hunger for God than I've ever had before. There were a couple of places, a couple of different times during his ministry that he had that. And then he'd talk about the results, the, the, the miracles that would take place, the displays of power that would take place. He said as a result of one of those, the, well, the one that I mentioned, I woke up with a greater hunger for God than ever before. I've spent all day long in prayer drawing near to him. And in the meeting that they had that night, the people testified that when he pointed to people, didn't even lay hands on them, when he pointed to them, it would be like a lightning bolt would come out of his finger and strike them and they would be healed. We're talking about hundreds of people seeing stuff like this. And the Bible says the world will be filled with the knowledge of his glory at the end. Well, what's there for us? You know, this is the thing that Paul made mention of. Let me read to you from Philippians chapter 3. Paul talks about his own experience. He said, though I might have confidence, this is verse 4, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinks that he has whereof he might trust in his flesh, I am more. In other words, Paul's saying, the things that people brag about, I've got a greater position or, or history to be able to brag about that stuff than they do. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews that is touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. He's talking about his uh, history, his background of Jewish training. He said, nobody kept the law better than me. As touching the law blameless. But then he comes to the understanding and shares the truth that none of that matters a lick. What counts is Jesus. Yea, doubtless, verse 8, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Now I don't know what other expression or phrase you could use to show your contempt for the works of his life according to the law of Moses. But what's Paul after? Verse 9, he says, I want to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I might know him. Now notice what he's saying. He's saying righteousness is the foundation for really knowing God. Well, righteousness is becoming a believer. So he's going to use the same two designations, not the same phrase or the wording. But he's talking about the same two positions that Jesus talked about in John chapter 8. When Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples. And you shall know the truth. The truth comes from the word. And you shall know the truth. The truth comes from continuing in the word. And you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. 
Paul's talking about the same thing. He's saying everything I did in the flesh, everything I did in my Jewish history and background. He was the golden boy of the Jews for one, at one time. Probably at the time that he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. But he says none of that counts for anything. The only thing that counts for me is that I be found righteous by the blood of Jesus. Well then, if the word is life to those that find it and health to all their flesh then there's got to be a discovery process where we, through meditating the word, through continuing the word, inclining our ear to his sayings, not letting it depart from before our eyes, keeping the word in the midst of our heart, that process brings us to understanding, first and foremost, who we are in Christ and the righteousness of God which is by the shedding of his blood. So Paul, based on that foundation, says his desire is that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Now Paul's the one that told us before that the resurrection, the power exercised by God through the resurrection to raise Jesus from the dead and raise you or quicken you at the same time, make you alive in the same way, in the same manner, at the same time as Jesus was made alive. Paul spent the entirety of his life. This is at the end of his ministry. Paul spent the entirety of his adult life from the time that he was accosted by Jesus on the road to Damascus. Coming to understand his righteousness so that he could know him and the power of his resurrection. Then he adds the fellowship of his sufferings. sufferings. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Paul was just as, he, just as ready to give his life as Jesus was. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Folks, there's a real power that belongs to us. There's a very real power in the name of Jesus. That phrase or that quote of Wigglesworth thrills me and haunts me at the same time. Real living begins when you're filled with the Holy Ghost and begin to pray for power. Well, from a guy that raised 20 some odd people from the dead in his ministry, he must know what he's talking about when it comes to power. that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. I wonder if that's why Paul was inspired by the Holy Ghost to pray for the church at Ephesus, that we might know the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance. Thank God we have an inheritance. And not only thank God we have an inheritance, if we're not living in that inheritance, then we're living way below where God wants us to be. And that we would know the power that dwells in us as believers. That power that raised Jesus from the dead. As I said, Lake focused his ministry on spiritual hunger and spiritual dominion. There were hundreds of sermons that he'd preached that we have record of that he preached on those two topics, spiritual hunger and spiritual dominion. He was hungry for God and he stirred that hunger for God so that he could exercise authority over the devil to set people free. And folks, in a nutshell, that's Jesus' earthly ministry. 
Father, thank you for your plan of redemption. Thank you that you have made a way for each of us and for every human being on the planet to exchange our spiritual death, our sin, for the life of God that raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus said, Blessed are they that thirst, hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be filled. Father, we thank you for the knowledge that we have of the righteousness of God that's made us new. But Lord, there are so many things that we don't know. There are so many things that we haven't experienced. Things that you want us to take part in. The exercise of power to reach people and to set them free. So many things that we don't know or haven't tapped into. So Father, we pray for power to be manifest in us and in our church. We're not asking you to give us more power. We see in the word that the power is already there within us. But show us how to activate that power to set people free. Jesus died for every single one of us. Every person in this church Jesus paid a price for sin, sickness, and poverty. So this place, this family, this part of your family should not experience sickness or poverty in any way whatsoever. Not even a hint. But by the power of Jesus the power that's in that name. Each and every one of us should rise above every attack of the devil. Living by the same word that Jesus lived by, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Father, we thank you that the word of God the good news of what Jesus purchased for us is the power of God unto salvation to rescue, to deliver, to heal, to make safe, and to make sound. Father, we don't ask you to empower us. We ask you to show us what that power is and how to use it. Change us, Lord. Change us. We ask that you would make this place, this church, this family, to have a desire, the same desire that Paul had, that the first and foremost thing for us would be to know you through continuing in your word to know the truth and be free in every respect. I know, Father, that your power is available to heal every person in this church, to overcome every want, every need, I ask you, Father, to simply show us how to take hold, how to utilize that power that's already been given.
Lord, we're too late in the game to play church. It's too close to the end to pretend at these things. Give us a greater hunger for you, Lord, than we've ever had before. Take us to a higher level of faith, a higher level of confidence in you. We consecrate ourselves to you, Lord. Not our will, but your will be done. I ask, Father, that you would give unto your servants boldness to speak forth your word by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders would be done in the name of Jesus. We love you, Father. We thank you for the journey that we're on because we know that your end is glorious. Your end for us, your end for this church is the glory of God. So we attend to your words, Father. We incline our ear to your sayings. We let them not depart from before our eyes and we keep them in the midst of our heart. For your words are life unto us and health to all of our flesh. In Jesus' name, amen. Folks, I can't tell you adequately the excitement, the the knowledge, the inward witness that I have on the inside about what God's going to do. And I I really don't like talking about what God's going to do. God's doing things now. And oftentimes when we talk about what he's going to do, then we overlook today. And I don't mean to do that. I don't want to do that. But we're traveling down a path that brings us to the place by the will of God that brings us to the place of greater displays of power than we've ever seen. We're traveling down a path of the outpouring of the Holy Ghost that the Bible refers to as the latter rain. where healing will be commonplace. And it won't be isolated. It won't be just an isolated thing. It'll be prevalent. God wants to do miracles for us. And thank God he will. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand. Hallelujah. Let's lift our hands and thank him one more time. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your great plan of redemption. Thank you for making us join heirs with Jesus. Thank you that we're just as alive. We're just as saturated with that same life that raised Jesus from the dead. We worship you, Father. We yield to you. And we choose to put the word of God first place. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Amen. 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 Say this after me. The power power in the name of Jesus Jesus is mine. mine. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Come on back and be with us tonight for Healing School if you can. And you're dismissed.